Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. to our Sunday service here in Celebration, Florida. The topic of my message today is the sin of partiality. That's right, we're actually gonna be talking about sin today. Some people say that pastors don't talk about sin enough. Well, we're gonna be talking about the sin of partiality. Now, as our custom, we typically try to get people caught up to where we've been. We're gonna be in James chapter two today. So we've gone through James chapter one over the last four or five weeks. So I just wanna kind of catch you up, but we're gonna do it in reverse order. Because last week, last week, we took uh, the verse from James that said, be swift to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to wrath. And you know, it was, a, it was one of those sermons that afterwards, and as a pastor, you don't really expect it, you don't, you don't need it, supposedly you don't need it, but we got a lot of positive comments, a lot of positive comments from our, from our congregants, from our residents. And I think the reason was not so much that the message typically applied to them as well as if it would have been in their, in their 30s or 40s or 50s, because this idea of, 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 of being so busy that you don't get to hear God is something that the younger generation needs to, to, to know. It's something that I definitely needed to know, again, back when I was in my 30s or 40s or even 50s. But, but now, you know, we might have slowed down, but we still need to hear God. We still need to hear God. And I think that's why uh, people really resonated with uh, last, week's, last week's message. A few weeks ago, we looked at what James had to say about uh, temptation. And we found out that there was a, a blessing that was attached to temptation for enduring temptation. Temptation is, is common to all of us and God provides ways to ensure that, that we can endure. And there's a blessing attached to that. Now, if you were with us a few weeks before that, when we first began the epistle of, of James, um, we used the verse, count it all joy when you fall under various trials. You see that all of us are going to go through trials in life, uh, but there's, there's, there's a time for us to understand that it's really to be joyful. Uh, it's the testing of our faith that produces patience. That's what James says. And all of us, as we've gone through trials, we understand that actually we grow much more during the trials in our life uh, than when things are going actually pretty well. So, if you remember, we said that this book of James was written by James, who's the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and it was written to primarily Jewish believers. These are believers from Jerusalem that had, had come to Christ. A lot of them had come to faith um, during Pentecost. If you remember in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes uh, to the church at Pentecost. The 120 in the upper room are all filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter comes out on the porch and, and, and talks to them, and, and 3,000, 3,000 um, are, are saved and are baptized. And this is the beginning of the church. But shortly thereafter, persecution broke out. 
not only from the Jews, but also from the Romans. And many of the, these new Jewish believers left Jerusalem where persecution was rampant. And they went all around. They went north, south, east, and west. And they went to different places, but often they were in pagan lands. And James is writing to them as a scattered church. And that's, what, and that's going to be important, especially today, as we get into this message. And again, the title of my message today is the sin, the sin of partiality. So let's begin reading the scripture today in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We've got seven verses total. We'll take it four verses first. The first four verses, beginning in verse 1. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, this is the second time that we've read these instructions from James regarding the rich and the poor. Notice at the beginning, James says, my brethren, meaning that he is writing to believers. And this is key. If we recall in the first chapter, we read from James and he tells us that God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. Again, he's talking about the poor and the rich. And both of them, God is doing a work in their lives in order to lift them up, in order to encourage them, to, to show them where they need to go. Um, this is the, the love of God. It's, 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 it's the way that God is, is manifesting himself in, in our lives. And when that happens, we shouldn't worry about it. We should allow God to do his, his work that he needs. Now, James is telling us something very specifically today. He's talking about the sin of partiality. And partiality is favoritism, it's, it's bias, it's, it's prejudice. And yes, it's a sin when it's practiced, especially in the church. And we'll develop that teaching as we go along today. So James is writing to these believers, and, and we said that they are predominantly Jewish. Uh, this is early in the life of this movement. And if you remember, they're not called Christians at the beginning. Uh, the people that followed Jesus Christ as the Messiah were called the people of the way. And the reason they were called the people of the way is because Jesus Christ said that he was the way, the truth, and the light. So the people of the way followed Jesus. Um, we are sure that, that James is writing to Jewish believers, and we pick this up especially as we begin to read uh, in, in, in the verse that says, for if there should come into your assembly, that's, that's verse two, if there should come into your assembly. Now, that looks like a relatively simple statement, but in the Greek, it says something really important. Uh, that word assembly in the Greek is the, is the Greek word synahuge. Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar, and I'm certainly not one, but you don't need to be a Greek scholar in order to know that synagogue is the synagogue. So James is saying, if somebody comes into your synagogue, and we know that the early Christians, the early believers, which were primarily Jewish, they continued to meet together, not only in the regular synagogues, but in their own meeting places, and it's obvious they probably called them synagogues, synagogues, synagogues. Um, this goes all the way back 
This goes all the way back to uh, the Babylonian captivity and when people of Israel uh, were uh, scattered by the Babylonians. When the Babylonians came in under Nebuchadnezzar and they destroyed the temple of Solomon, uh, the Jewish people uh, went into Babylon, into captivity, and they started these meeting houses. These, they, would, they would meet in these synagogues, and a, a synagogue was a place where Jewish believers would get together to share the scriptures and for, for fellowship. And, and this word is used 55 times, isn't that something? 55 times in the New Testament, and typically it's translated as synagogue. Now here we're translating it as assembly or a meeting place, and that's because we're reading it as part of the New Testament, and we don't want to confuse anybody. These were Christian believers. These were believers in Jesus as the Messiah. Now Jesus actually taught often in the synagogues. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, for example, it says, and Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, the synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sicknesses and manner of diseases among the people. So it's important to understand that, that James is not going to give us a commentary here uh, about the state of, the, of society. He's not going to be talking about the, the ills of the, of the pagan culture or what it's like outside of the meeting places, but he's talking about when you're meeting, when you're meeting, uh, praying, believing, you're in fellowship, you're worshiping, maybe you're taking the Lord's Supper as we did today. Um, he's talking, when you're doing that, be sure to not show favoritism and this, the sin of partiality. And, and what he's not saying is that don't take the things that are going in the culture and bring them in uh, just be concerned with what you're doing. So this is not a matter of talking about Black Lives Matter or, or, or white nationalism um, or whether white privilege exists. You see, those conversations are fine on the outside, but don't bring them into the church. We just don't need to do that. Let's work on the things that we can control, that we have some impact on, and that's our attitude towards the people inside our church. We, we sin, James says, when we hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, I wanted to say that again because I wanted to focus on these words, the Lord of glory. You know, James is quoting that, and this is the only place we see that quote in the New Testament. And it's interesting because that actually comes from Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 reads this, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may enter. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may enter. Now, I did some research, and what I found out is that in the synagogues, in the synagogues, every day of the week, uh, there was a different official uh, psalm that was to be read. And this Psalm 24 was to be read on the first day of the week. The very first day of the week. Well, that's interesting because we know that the Lord, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead on the first day of the week. In fact, the early Christians began to call the first day of the week the Lord's Day. It was the day the Lord rose from the dead, the Lord's Day. We see that often in the Acts of the Apostle as well as in the book of Revelation. It's the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And James is calling attention that 
every single synagogue on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, on the very first day of the week, um, they were saying it was the Lord of glory. So he's attaching this Lord of glory to none other than, than Jesus Christ. So James is telling us that the church is not to be a respecter of persons. In fact, the Apostle Paul taught us that as well. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For there is no respecter of persons with God. And this is not new. This is not a new teaching at all for the Jewish people, or let alone for the Christians. You know, going all the way back to the time when Saul was king, the very first king, and Samuel was there, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the Lord tells Samuel that he's displeased with Saul and that Samuel is to go and anoint a new king, somebody that the Lord would point out to him. And Samuel is directed to the house of Jesse, and he comes across Jesse's oldest, his firstborn, who's this tall young man, very good, very good looking, good in stature. And Samuel uh, believes that this is the one that he's going to anoint. And the Lord stops him. And he says, this is, Sam, this is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his statue, stature because I have rejected him. Now, again, the Lord is talking about the son of Jesse, um, the eldest son of Jesse. Uh, David, by the way, was the youngest son and actually was in the field at the time. Um, the Lord continues, he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, James goes on in our, in our verses today to explain exactly what he means by this sin of partiality because he gives us a vivid example. I'll read it to you again, starting now in verse 2. It says, For if, if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, or say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, and it's amazing. This example holds up so well to this day. Because let me tell you, if you've been a churchgoer, if you've only gone for maybe just a few services, if you've only graced the inside of a church for a few months, you've probably already seen this. You know, the, the church is getting started and maybe the service is just getting ready to get started and up, up pulls a Mercedes, a BMW, a Jaguar, and, and out steps this well-dressed, good-looking couple. You know, maybe they have gold rings on, but maybe they have a Rolex. Uh, but but they, they come into the church and everybody kind of notices. And, you know, you kind of lean over and say, hey, be sure to get their name. <laughs> you know, be sure to get their name. Make sure they are. And you basically say, make sure that they're, they're welcomed. And the church does a good job of welcoming them, right? And, and you want and you, and you, and you to be able to, to greet those people and make sure that you have a, they have a favorable impression of you. And, and why do we do that? Have you thought about that? Why do we do that? The reason is, I'm glad you asked the question. The reason is, is because we think that that couple is going to be an asset, an asset to our congregation. It's an asset because we've got a mortgage on the building and maybe uh, they could be a big giver. Maybe they can write a check and help reduce the mortgage. Or maybe it's that, maybe it's that uh, church playground uh, for the kids that you want to build and you're thinking about doing a fundraiser. Maybe you don't have to do a fundraiser at all because this new couple 
Uh, obviously, people with means uh, can write a check and take care of it. So we look at these people that on the outside look like they're wealthy and they're rich, and we immediately think of them as an asset. On the other hand, what do we do? What do we typically do when somebody comes up and they're shabbily dressed? <laughs> you know, isn't it funny? I mean, I've been, I've been a pastor now for about 21 years. And 21 years ago, when I was at the, on the pulpit of a church, I would be dressed in a suit. I mean, suit, tie, white shirt, tie, the whole, the whole nine yards, right? And then over a period of time, and it was very quickly, over a period of time, what, what did we do? We got rid of the tie, you know, and then we got, rid of the, we got rid of the jacket completely. We started wearing more casual clothes. I had blue jeans on like I have today. I mean, we became much more casual. But still, even to this day, even though here in Florida, a lot of people come to church in shorts and flip-flops, you still can tell when somebody that's very poor enters the church, right? They look like they should be pushing a shopping cart and they come into the church. And don't get me wrong, I, I don't know of any churches that, that tell these people to leave, that, that treat them rudely. But what do we do? We take a look at this couple and unlike the wealthy couple, we don't think of them as an asset, do we? We think of them as a liability. We think of them as, okay, this is gonna be a couple that, this is gonna be a person that if they stay, uh, we're gonna probably have to help them out. We're gonna probably have to give them some money for their rent or, or you know, get back on their feet. Um, maybe we need to break into the, to the food baskets, you know, the, the, the canned goods, maybe they're gonna need some food. We think of them as, as liabilities. And, and this, is, this is an important lesson to us. This, this letter by James was written 2,000 years ago, but it still applies today. And I love it that James was speaking to the church, inside the church, and he uses this example of rich and poor. We have to understand that that was a much different age, much more difficult age than it is today. Uh, back at the time when James was writing, writing this, it wasn't just the Middle East where James was in, in Jerusalem. It was, it was all of the Roman Empire and, and typically the entire world. Uh, slavery was, was common. More than 50% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. It was not unusual to have people within the church, people within the church to have slaves. That was part of the economy and, and they had slaves. We know that because there's lessons on how to treat your slave in the Bible. It was a different, uh, slavery none was only common, but people, whatever caste or whatever class they were born into, uh, they stayed for the rest of their life. There was very little mobility, lots of discrimination, lots of persecution, and quite frankly, violence. Now, historians tell us that when the church was born on Pentecost and shortly thereafter, the unity and the love that the Christians had for each other was, was quite shocking. In Acts chapter two, for example, after the Holy Spirit descended and 3,000 people were baptized, this is what the scripture records. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You know, so I put these, put these verses into perspective because the church as a whole has done more 
more to promote loving each other as Christ loved the church and more to be able to provide for the poor than, than any other group, whether it's a religion or a class or empire, king, queen, the church has done far more than anybody else. The church has provided for the poor. They took care of the widows and orphans, opened up hospitals and schools for people, typically regardless of, of race or ethnicity, although not always, and regardless of whether they were rich or poor. The, the church was there to be able to provide that safety net, to help people. In, in this country, for example, in the United States of America, it was in this country that Christians led the Led, for, led the movement for the abolition of slavery long before slavery was abolished in 1865 with the passing of the 13th Amendment, Christians were abolitionists. It was the Christians in the early revolutionary, going back 100 years before that, um, in Puritan New England and in Quaker Pennsylvania uh, that passed legislation abolishing slavery in the northern states, those northern states. In New York City, for example, there was a, a, a Baptist preacher. Uh, his name was Henry Ward Beecher of, of Plymouth Church, and he began what is known uh, to this day as the Underground Railroad, allowing uh, slaves that escaped in the South to be able to make it to some of the northern states uh, where they could be free. Now here's the point. This, this love and unity that was so often expressed in the church doesn't come easily. A at any given time, we're always kind of saddled down and weighed down by the society and some of those old habits uh, creep in. And that's why the sin of partiality still exists to this day. And that's why as a pastor, and as, a, as, a, as our churches, we need to, to teach this. We need to encourage people within the church to love each other as Christ loved the church and not to sin with partiality, not to look at the outside, but be like God and I'll understand that God is responsible for the heart of man. Let's, call, let's go on. Uh, verses five, six, and seven. Uh, James says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Do, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So, so here's what we need to understand. While it's easy for us to be partial to the rich, God isn't partial to them at all. Jesus says, uh, the poor have been chosen to be rich in faith. The poor have been chosen to be rich in faith. And again, history and, and even, even modern, modern observation tells us that it's often the poor that are much more likely to be receptive to the gospel and actually trust God for their salvation through their life. They trust God, and this is likely because the poor of this world simply have more opportunities to trust God because they just can't trust anything or anyone else. Those that are rich can easily trust in their riches. This is ultimately a disaster for them, uh, and it will, they'll be found out at some time in the future, uh, but they don't know that at the time. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 18, he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
And do you know why Jesus said that? Uh, the occasion was given uh, in the same scripture in chapter 18 of Luke, uh, where a rich young ruler uh, came to Jesus and basically asked him, he said, sir, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And then Jesus has this dialogue with him, and Jesus says, well, you, you know the commandments, and it's interesting, he talks about the commandments between man and man, not man and God. So Jesus goes over, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother. These are the commandments between man and man, how we treat each other. Uh, then now there's an interesting reply from the rich young ruler. He says this, he says, all these I've kept since as a boy. And Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. You know, this, this account of the rich young ruler with Jesus is in three of the four gospels, three or four. Now, if it's once in the gospel, if it's mentioned in the Bible, it's worthy of us teaching it and we do. But this is referenced three times in the gospel. That's because it's extremely important to understand what Jesus is asking this, this rich young ruler to do. And it's something that he asked all of us. It's two things. One, he says, come follow me. And it says the man went away because he had many possessions. That's why Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is telling him something else. Jesus is requiring a commitment from him as well as us. And the commitment is this, is to give up what we can't possibly keep. We give up what we can't possibly keep in order to gain what we can't possibly lose. That's so good, I wanna say it again. Jesus is telling us to make a commitment to give up what we can't possibly keep in order to gain that which we can't possibly lose. You know, and again, church history demonstrates that comparatively, it's often the poor that come to Christ, that embrace this gospel message. You know, just one example off the top of my head is India. In India, India is a very, very large country. I think it's like 1.2 billion people, 1.2 billion. And, and Christianity is a, is a small minority. It's about 2.5%. Now, because there's so many people in India, 2.5% still gives you 45, 50 million people. Did you know that the vast majority of those people that are Christians in India are coming from the lowest class? They're the untouchables. They are the very lowest class that are basically considered to be subhuman by the rest of the people of India. And, and this is exactly why. Uh, the people of the lowest class, the people that are poor often come to Christ because they have everything to gain. They have nothing to lose. And this has happened right from the very beginning. Right from the very beginning, Christianity was a place where every member was equal. Um, everyone was invited. Even the lowest slaves that embraced Christianity uh, could find personal dignity. Jesus commanded people to love one another. We saw even in the, in the Acts of the Apostles that people would share what they had with others. If you were hungry, you could be fed. If you were sick, they call the elders of the ch church and anoint you with oil, and often you would be healed. This is why the poor rushed quickly into the kingdom of God. Now, regarding James' words again in our message today, we should remind ourselves also that God never calls us to be uh, partial against, against the rich. You know, God's not against wealth. God's not against rich people. He's, he loves everybody. 
He's not, he's no respecter of persons. Uh, you know, there's no reason for us to be anti-capital or an, anti-capitalist or, or anti-property uh, anti or, or anti-wealth. We just shouldn't favor those that have that wealth. We need to be like Jesus and be no respecter of person. Justice in this country should be blind. Uh, that's why Lady Liberty has a blindfold. Uh, whether you're rich or you're poor, everybody should be treated equally under the law. And, and being able to, uh, a, a decision should be uh, based on the merits of the case. But again, that's problem with society. If that doesn't work, that's society's issue. That's not our issue. In our church, we need to be care careful of the sin of partiality. And James is giving us an example here of the rich versus the poor. So in closing today, let's go over what we typically do and give us some, some lessons to take home. And I would say there are three lessons today we can take home. The first lesson is this, the sin of partiality still exists. Jesus tells us that we're to love each other as he has loved us. And while we've made great strides towards being cooperative and egalitarian and have high respect for each other, uh, there's, still re uh, there's still opportunity for us to understand that, that still, the sin still exists and to be on the lookout for it so that we don't treat each other like that. We never want to think of people that come into our church as assets or liabilities. Uh, just consider them to be future brothers and sisters in Christ. Lesson number two, Jesus is speaking to the church. The modern-day synagogue. It's the modern-day church. And he's, and he's talking to the believers within the church. And we're, we're, we're told how to treat each other, teach each other. He's not talking about our responsibilities to the rest of the world, that somehow we're supposed to have this kind of impact that there are no longer, um, there, there's no longer discrimination in, outside. We, we can't possibly do that. The church doesn't have that kind of influence. It never has. It, it really never has. The only reason the church has had the influence it has is because so many people have embraced Christ and their lives have changed. That's how we change society, is by changing people. We don't go after changing laws. You can try to change all the laws you want, but even if we change all the laws and have everybody as robots walking around like they're doing all good things, it still doesn't change their hearts. Our objective is to bring the gospel to the people, allow God to change their hearts. So as a result, I mentioned it earlier, but this, this idea of Black Lives Matter or transgender rights or, or white nationalism or, or white privilege, that's got no, it has no place in the church at all. Pro or con, just leave it outside the door. Let's work on the things that we have some control over, and that's our attitudes on how we treat each other. Third and finally, Jesus has chosen to use the poor people to be rich in faith. You know, there's a warning in the words of Jesus where he says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the best things we can do is to embrace what the uh, apostles had to say. And, and that is to whatever we hold dear, whatever our status, whatever our sufferings, uh, all of them individually and collectively, they're not comparable to the glory that God has for us in eternity. Let the stuff on the earth go. Hold it very, very loosely because the King is coming, the King of glory. And we have an opportunity to live eternally with our Lord and our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, 
for who you are. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.